sovereignty of God and the planning of Troy Walliser. We are now in John chapter 13 to talk about Judas and Satan. So we do need the Lord's help this morning. So if you have a Bible, John 13 uh, will be in verses 18 through 30. So if you'll take your uh, copy of God's Word and turn there. We are all familiar, I think, with movies, shows, books, stories of enemies hiding in plain sight. So there are numerous examples of what we watch, what we read about surprise villains, those, who, those characters who have been revealed in a certain moment to be the enemy, the ones who have been working to undermine the protagonist or the hero. <clears throat> They've concealed their true identity, their intentions and their actions the whole time until a key moment in the storyline. Think of Darth Vader. He's not just a Sith Lord or the right-hand man of the Emperor. He is Luke Skywalker's father. Or Norman Bates from Psycho running the hotels, an awkward and harmless, seemingly harmless man. It's revealed later he's what? Dressing up as his mother and killing people. Or take a recent example of the Marvel show WandaVision. And so I don't know if you've kept up with the movies or uh, shows in the Marvel Universe, but throughout much of this series, we have Agnes, played by Catherine Hahn, is uh, posing as Wanda's nosy and comedic neighbor. So throughout the whole show, she's inserted herself into the story. It's not until the end of episode 7 that we learn that Agnes is really a dark and powerful witch, Agatha Harkness. And she's been manipulating all these events in the town of Westview. And we see throughout this reveal that the dark, nefarious powers in this show were at work because it was Agatha all along. And so the theme song that accompanies this uh, revelation goes like this. Who's been messing everything up? It's been Agatha all along. Who's been pulling every evil string? It's been Agatha all along. She's insidious, so perfidious. And you haven't even noticed, and the pity is, it's too late to fix anything. Now that everything has gone wrong, thanks to Agatha, naughty Agatha, it's been Agatha all along. And you can YouTube it. It's a much better rendition there. It... (laughs) mirrors the monsters of the Adams family, this nefarious evil plot working its way throughout the story. The villain has been hiding in plain sight. She's pulling, pulling every string, messing everything up. She's trying to defeat the hero. Every good story has an antagonist, a villain. And many of these stories, the villain has been hiding in plain sight the whole time, only to be revealed at a key moment. And we see that in the best of all stories, in the story of Jesus, there's an enemy hiding in plain sight, plotting the overthrow and defeat of the hero. In the story of Jesus' betrayal, there's actually two villains, one human and one demonic. They've been trying to pull every string and manipulate events to kill and murder Jesus, to get him out of the way. And these plans and the villainous powers have been working in the shadows, ready to be revealed at the right hour. But we will also see in this story an even greater power at work. Another that's been hiding in plain sight the whole time, but people have seemed to miss it. A power that will defeat the villain's plans and strategies and purposes, and they will be overturned to the benefit of the hero Jesus. Satan and Judas and others do everything within their power to make things go wrong for Jesus. But they fail to notice his sovereign power of God at work to fix everything. 
In fact, God was actually going to use their powers, use their plans, and use their purposes, not for their good and their benefit, but for His. He will use sinful men to accomplish His plan and purposes. It's a plot twist that no one really sees coming. What looks like a confident victory for Satan and the powers of darkness is really their certain defeat. And we see that there's a truly invincible power of Jesus at work all along. And so if you'll turn your eyes to the text now, John chapter 13, we'll start reading in verse 18. The Apostle John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. He says, this is Jesus speaking here. He says, I am not speaking of all of you, speaking to the disciples. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are doing, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he went immediately went out, and it was night. And so we are still in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples here. The disciples have gathered with Jesus to celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus has just returned to the table after washing the disciples' feet, as we saw last week. So this is Thursday night in Jerusalem. They're ready to celebrate the Passover. But we know, if we've read the rest of the story, we're anticipating the next events in Jesus' life. His betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his beatings, his scourgings, his mockings, his humiliation, his crucifixion, and his death. Jesus has gathered his closest friends here to the table to celebrate the Passover meal, to institute a new covenant, to give final instructions to his disciples. And after this, we'll see a period in John's gospel where he will devote 25% of his writings to the last hours of Jesus as he instructs the disciples right before he goes to his death. And so we know that this is night, and this night is incredibly important to Jesus and to us as Christians today. And we know this happens at night because John tells us in verse 30, it ends that way, and it was night. Why the time stamp here, John? This is kind of odd. Why do you throw that out there? Well, while John gives a chronological description here, it's, it's dark, it's at nighttime, but what he's using here is an, is an illustration. He's using an analogy, and he's done this throughout his gospel, throughout his writings, light and darkness, day and night. Throughout his writings, John will contrast the light of day and the darkness of night to describe spiritual realities. And so Jesus declared earlier in his book several times that he is the true light of the world. 
He has come into the world to give light, to give true and everlasting light and life to people, to us. Just as physical life cannot flourish without the Son, spiritual life cannot flourish without the Son of God. So if we don't follow God, we walk on our own path, which leads to darkness. If we walk, walk with God, we walk in His light into life and flourishing. Jesus says when He's in the world, the light shines. But darkness is about to take hold of Jesus. He's about to go out of the world. The light is about to depart because it is night. Darkness has fallen, and it looks like darkness is going to reign. Jesus will be betrayed by Judas, one of his closest followers. He'll be turned over to the religious leaders and to the Romans who will execute him. Jesus' hour, the hour of darkness, has come. But how do we get here? How did one of the 12 disciples, one of Jesus' most intimate friends, end up betraying him for a handful of coins? Where did it go so wrong? I don't think Judas woke up on this Thursday morning and says, you know what? I think I want to betray Jesus today, just on a whim. You know, let's just turn him over to the Pharisees. They want him anyway, so why not give him to him? No, this plot has been simmering and stirring beneath the surface the entire time. It's been hiding, waiting in the shadows for the right moment. And so Judas will show us the danger and sinister power of Satan and sin. This is a power that threatens to destroy Jesus, Judas, and even us. That same concealed power threatens to undo us today. So Judas will serve as a warning of this covert power that has been hiding in plain sight. So let's turn our attention first to Judas, and he will show us the dangerous deception of sin. So if you're taking notes, our first point, the dangerous deception of sin, and we really see three types of dangers here. First of all, let's look at the danger of hidden sin, the danger of hiding sin. Now, like I said, Judas probably didn't uh, join up to Jesus or turn Jesus over on a whim. I don't think if you were to ask Judas three years before this, hey, Judas, what's on your five-year plan? I don't think he would have said, become the most notorious turncoat in all of history. I don't think that's on his five-year agenda. These actions in the upper room demonstrate the end of his journey, not the beginning. So how did he end up here? Well, John will give us a hint the chapter before. In chapter 12, when Mary is washing Jesus' feet, she's used this expensive nar that cost almost a year's wages. And Judas says, hey, all that money... It seems to be a waste here on you, Jesus. We should have been giving that to the poor. Well, John gives us insight. says, well, Judas didn't care about the poor. Judas only cared about himself. Judas was the treasurer of the group. He held the money box. And as he held that box, he'd always skim a little bit off the top. It would seem that Judas has followed Jesus because Jesus was his ticket to fortune. And so if you look back through the gospel, many in the crowds will follow Jesus because they wanted something from Jesus, not because they wanted to be with Jesus. Jesus was their means to get what they ultimately wanted. Sometimes they wanted a meal because their bellies were full. Jesus, you provide a good lunch. You provide a good dinner. Hey, can you give me more of that? Still, others wanted him, Jesus, to be their king and liberator from the army. Still, others wanted Jesus to be their ticket to heavenly and earthly power. Judas, it seems, wanted Jesus to be his ticket to 
money, to luxury, to prestige, and to fame. So for whatever reason, many hearts in this, the crowds that were following Jesus pursued Jesus to build their own kingdom. They did not search after the kingdom of God. And so Judas follows this same pattern. For Judas, his reasoning for following Jesus must have been his pocketbook to increase his financial standing. He thought Jesus, when he comes to establish his kingdom, he kicks out the Romans, he's going to lead Jesus and the other disciples to some position of luxury, power, and prestige. So Judas has become disillusioned. He's disillusioned when he begins to see Jesus. His plans doesn't include taking over Jerusalem. There's no powerful coup. There's no amass and hoard of wealth. Judas becomes disillusioned. And moreover, when Jesus taught about giving away your wealth, setting up treasures in heaven, where Judas becomes a little bitter. So disillusionment leads to bitterness. And then when Jesus calls the disciples and those who follow him to follow him to death, well, Judas just becomes hardened. He becomes disillusioned and then bitter and then just hardened. And when we trace his path backwards, we see that Judas was never a real true follower of Jesus in the first place. To be clear, Judas is not a representative of someone who believed and was saved at some point in the past, only to lose that salvation at some point in the future. No. The fact is, he never follows Jesus. And because he doesn't follow him at the end, it proves that he never followed him from the beginning. His treacherous actions were undergirded by this hardness of heart, this bitterness, and this disillusionment that stems from unbelief in the nature of Jesus. Judas never authentically believed in Christ, even though it looked like he did. No, he's following a false image of Jesus, one that he had built in his own mind. And when Jesus gets in the way of that treasure, when Judas says, if I can't have my treasure, Jesus, then you must get out of the way. This is what we see Judas doing. And what's fascinating is that this sin of greed and unbelief was kept hidden this whole time. No one but Judas, and I would say Jesus, no one knows what's brewing below the surface. And so there is a danger for us in dabbling and holding and hiding sin. So the desires and temptations and actions of sin can lie dormant for a long time. Seemingly overnight, they can just explode in a whirlwind of wickedness and depravity. Here's how James, the brother of Jesus, will instruct us in his letter. So James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 say this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Or you can see this pattern in Judas. Can we see this pattern in ourselves? In our innermost heart, sin will tempt us and lure us away because we want it. We are enticed by our own desire. And the external temptations that are around us are waking up within us these desires to do something contrary to God's law and against his righteousness. We cannot, like the old comedian Flip Wilson, say, ah, the devil made me do it. That could have been a likely excuse for Judas. We read earlier in chapter 13, verse 2, that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Verse 27 in our text now, it says Satan entered him. So from those statements, it looks like Judas is just 
some kind of toy or, or pawn of Satan. Well, Judas doesn't have, a, he doesn't have a choice. He's just been used as Satan's instrument. He doesn't have that excuse. No, Judas is not a victim of devilish forces at work. While he is influenced, deceived, and manipulated by Satan, Judas still has agency. He still has a choice in the matter. He knows what he's doing. And so the influence of Satan and the actions of Judas run side by side. And so it seems like sin and Satan are kind of crouching at the door of Judas's heart, waiting and wanting to come in. And so Judas has, and we have the opportunity and choice to open that door or to keep it closed. To open the door and let sin come in. Judas dabbles in sin early in his walk with Jesus. He doesn't close that door. Satan takes advantage of Judas' of Judas's tendencies, his desires for money, and lures him away. Judas desired money over the Messiah, and Satan exploits that desire. He does the same thing to us. Isn't that the same pattern in our own lives? When sin is allowed to fester and to grow in the dark, it will consume us, derail our walk with Jesus, and threaten to destroy us. So I've never understood the impulse of people who want to have a pet of a wild animal. Like someone who's going to, yeah, I raised this tiger from the time it was a baby. And so you see them carrying it in their little basket. Yeah, I've got one with my tiger cub. And they feed that tiger cub, treat it as one of the family. It sleeps in their bed. And you know what happens a couple years later? Well, that tiger grows up. And then are you really surprised to know that that tiger one day clawed their master's face off? No. You should have seen this coming. A tiger is not a tame animal. Sin is not a tame animal. One day you will wake up and it will crawl, claw your face off. John Owen, the great Puritan, says, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Sin reigns in the dark. And so if we treat it just like this little pet that we kind of keep on the inside, one day it will grow up and consume us. Anger, bitterness, gossip, ridicule, lust, sexual sin, greed, envy, all these things can lie hidden in our lives. It can be this little pet sin that we kind of carry around in a little box. But we must be constantly starving that sin, not feeding it, or else they will overtake us and threaten to destroy us and our walk with Christ. And it could end up destroying our family, our friends, our vocation, our ministry. We must avoid and beware of the danger of hidden sin. So Judas gives an example of this hidden sin, but closely related, he gives us an image of the danger of persistent hypocrisy. He gives us the, a picture of the danger of hi, persistent hypocrisy. So it's funny, when Jesus announced that he's going to be betrayed here, the disciples don't have any clue what's going on. It's amazing that none of them know who it is. Look in verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom it is. Is it you? Is it you? Is it me? Wait, must be you. Nope, not you. Not maybe you. Peter, who's sitting on the other side of the table, motions to John, who's sitting next to Jesus, because Peter wants to know. Luke tells us that they began to question each other. And this uh, idea here, it says, uh, Jesus, after this exchange between himself and Judas, John will say in verse 28, says, Now no one at the table knew why he said this to Judas. You must, whatever you're doing, go do quickly. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. 
or that he should give something to the poor. It's not like Judas looked like our image of a demon or satanic-possessed man. His head's not moving around in circles. He's not throwing up green vomit. He has little horns coming out or tail coming out of his pants. No, he looks just like one of them. Uh, I got this example from Bryce, uh, this illustration. He used this uh, image the other day. He says, if you were to hear on the news of a relative who was arrested for some bizarre crime, your mind would probably go, oh yeah, I know exactly who that is. <laughs> it's that crazy cousin Eddie. Of course, Eddie would be the one who would be arrested for throwing sweet and sour sauce packets at his girlfriend while riding his four-wheeler dressed as a pirate. That would be cousin Eddie. He would be the one to be the Florida man of the week. And so we all have relatives like that. You're like, yeah, he'd be up to something like that. Not so with Judas. Judas was master at living the double life. They had no idea. They were completely deceived. They've been living with this guy for three years. They've eaten with him, ministered with him, followed Jesus together. Jesus had been bodily with, him, with them the whole time, but his heart was far from them and far from Jesus. His actions and his words on the outside don't match with the, on the inside. This is textbook hypocrisy. <clears throat> and all 12 of the men look, at the, look like disciples, but one is a devil. The danger of persistent hypocrisy is this. It leads to the hardening and calcification of one's heart. It leads to the calcification and hardening of our heart. The more one acts inconsistent with their heart, what we believe, the more we bury our sin deep within ourselves, the harder our sin becomes. The wider and longer we leave that door open to sin, the narrower the door to escape becomes. This is why spiritual community, accountability, and vulnerability are so important. Being known and loved is the ultimate joy of Christian community. Hypocrisy and sin cannot flourish or survive in our lives if we are open and honest with one another in confession and offering forgiveness. It means asking one another deep questions about what's going on and being honest enough to answer them. What it doesn't mean is that we all stand up and just air our skeletons of dirty laundry right here. No, it means finding a few men and women in our life to ask the hard questions and to offer that honest repentance. To repent of covetousness or lust and sexual sin, of stealing money or time from work, of wasting our time with Netflix. All these types of sins can be covered and they lead to hardening and calcification if we don't bring them to the light to receive forgiveness. Hidden sin festers in the dark. Persistent hypocrisy hides from the light. The danger of this hypocrisy is this calcification, this hardening. The remedy for hidden sin and hypocrisy is confession that brings forgiveness and eternal life. These are the dangers that Judas presents us with. Another danger, quickly, is the danger of wasted position. The danger of wasted privilege or position. We remember that Judas has been a first-hand witness of countless miracles, He's seen astonishing teaching, seen Jesus do amazing things. He's received the most intimate instructions from the Son of God, yet it's all wasted. His privilege and his position have been squandered because he's not been fully engaged. When I think of squandered privilege, I often think of my uh, first college roommate. And so he had come 
to university on a full-ride scholarship to play football. This was a giant of a man. When I first met him, he filled up the entire door frame. I'm like, I'm going to be on this guy's good side. Because he was huge and fast, but he wasted it all. In his first year, he uh, decided not to go to class or play much football, but instead chased girls, drugs, and beer. All the three things your mother tells you to avoid. This guy full bore into sin. He just wasted all this time, all this money, ended up dropping out. So he has a privilege that he just wastes. He squanders it. And the danger for Judas is similar. The danger for us is the same. So Judas has seen all these things. We didn't experience firsthand the water or the wine made from water. We didn't eat of the bread and fish on the hillside. We didn't hear the Sermon of the Mount with our ears. We hadn't seen him calm the storms. We didn't walk with Jesus on the water, but we have an overwhelmingly spiritual privilege even now. But how much do we neglect and waste it? Think about all the copies of God's Word that you have at your house. How many of them are collecting dust? We have access to sermons and books and videos and podcasts and all this material out here to know the Bible more, to know and to draw closer to God more, but we don't apply it, we forget it, or we just have a shelf full of things to impress others. We gather and are open to come together as a church. We're part of a vibrant church family. Do we neglect it? Do we waste the resources that are in this room with one another? We live with a constant temptation because we are in close proximity to the things of Jesus to be close to him without being changed by him. We think of it just because ooh, we, maybe if we just be around the things of Jesus, the things of church, then we'll be saved. Those things are going to rub off on us. Well, faith, righteousness, and holiness are not obtained by a process like osmosis. It's not that the things of faith are just kind of floating through the air, and if we just run through it fast enough or sit in it long enough, that it's going to just kind of pour into us. It doesn't work like that. We must be reborn by the Spirit. We must eat of the body and blood. We cannot half-heartedly taste the things of faith. We must consume them. It's going to be very easy for us just because we're around this that we are saved. Judas was around all of this stuff. But we must be careful. We can profess faith, but not necessarily possess faith. We can profess our faith in Christ, but not possess and trust in Him. Don't neglect our spiritual privilege that we have. We are proximate. We are close to all of these things. We have a position of spiritual blessing. Don't neglect the gifts you've been given. Don't neglect the opportunities you have. Ask for a new taste, a new heart, a new desire. Ask for the resurrection power to renovate your life. We will not be saved being close to Jesus. We only saved when we are in Christ Jesus. So there is a danger of neglecting this spiritual position and privilege that you've been given. So Judas will provide us with these warnings of sin and Satan. His heart was hard. Hypocrisy reigned. Sin lay hidden and deep, only to be revealed in this fateful Thursday night. And if you were to read the rest of the story from this human image, it would seem that because his actions lead to the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus, then Satan wins. 
Satan, through Judas, has this surreptitious plan to undo everything. This heinous and vile, insidious plot to murder the most innocent and righteous son of God. It looks like Satan is going to win. If we look at our life, it may even seem that all the forces of darkness, all the things are coming against us, the world, sin, and Satan are bearing down on us, and it looks like they are going to win. Martin Luther, the ancient hymn writer, says, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Have you felt or do you feel now the powers of darkness at work against you? Will Jesus, will his people, will we be defeated in the end? Well, Luther will go on and say, No, we will not fear for, the rat, for God hath willed his truth to triumph. Through us, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? For, he, we, for we know his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. And that little word, that hiding power, is the name of Jesus. So the satanic plot to overthrow the Son of God will not have the final say in history. Everything is working so that we, in the end, can say it was not Judas or Satan, it was Jesus and the Father all along. And that brings us securing, deep, lasting, assuring comfort. So let's look at Jesus now and the securing comfort of Christ. We see the deception of sin with the securing comfort of Christ. And we see this comfort in a couple ways. First, we will see the comfort of his sovereign control. And we sang about this just now. So in the eyes of the apostles, the betrayal of Jesus comes out of nowhere. Who could have predicted this would have happened? Is there no rule here? Is there no discretion? Is there no direction? Where does this all lead? And the disciples freak out and they run away after it all falls apart. But what they fail to realize and what we often fail to realize is that there is a higher power, a greater power at work. Namely, God's sovereign plan to bring many people to eternal life, many people to glory, has to go through the death of his son. The very death that Judas sets in motion. And it's mind-blowing to realize that God's plan is at work in every detail, every word, every letter of this story. And we'll see that Jesus doesn't keep his disciples or us in suspense. Jesus offers numerous pieces of evidence that He's in control all the time. And just if we watch a show when the, the villain is revealed at the end, remember if you go back and watch the show from the very beginning, you're like, oh yeah, I see that. Oh yeah, I saw that. Oh yeah, she did that. Oh yeah, this happened. The same thing happens when we watch our life and in the life of Jesus. If we go back through, it says, oh yeah, Jesus is working here. God is working there. He's doing this. He's putting this in place. He's working that. So Jesus gives us several pieces of evidence that he's at work. First of all, let's just notice Jesus' knowledge. What does Jesus know? Look back at the first of the chapter in verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand and that he knew he had come from God, it was going back to God. God has given Jesus the image. He sees the whole storyline. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. He knows what's about to come. He knows he's going to the cross he knows he's going to glory. 
There's no uncertainty in Jesus. He knows what's happening. He knows as he walks this road, even with fear and trepidation, where it leads and what it leads through. But notice what he also knows. Verse 18. Jesus tells them, I know whom I have chosen. Earlier, Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus knows what Judas is and what he is going to do. But notice that Jesus doesn't choose Judas to be the betrayer. He doesn't say, ah, you'll do. I'll pick you for the role of betrayer. No, he knows what Judas is going to do. He chooses Jesus in part because he knows Judas will fulfill Scripture. So that's the second piece of evidence. Jesus knows his knowledge, and then we see Scripture's fulfillment. In verse 18, Jesus will quote a psalm of David. And David, the king of Israel, had also experienced a high-handed treason at the hand of one of his most trusted advisors. So Jesus will quote Psalm 41, verse 9. And here's <clears throat> Psalm 41 in, all, in, in, uh, in, in the whole verse. David says this, says, Even my close friend in whom I had trusted ate my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. And so David, just like Jesus, had been dining, eating the most intimate friendship with a close friend, and he's been betrayed. David, almost a thousand years before Jesus, is predicting that this is going to happen. Jesus is living out the fulfillment of prophecy. And it's not some stranger, it's not some guy off the street, it is one of his closest friends who's lifted up his heel against him. Judas does nothing that is out of step with Scripture. Everything he does has been predicted and laid out by God. And moreover, we see Jesus make a prediction that this is going to happen. Actually, he does it twice. Verse 19, Jesus says this. He declares he's about to be sold out. He says, I am telling you this now, disciples, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. <clears throat> then verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And I think Jesus does this. He clearly and explicitly tells them what's going to happen because he wants them to be fully prepared about what's going down. And so they, so they don't experience any trouble or faltering in their faith, Jesus says, this is about to happen, guys. Don't be taken by surprise. He knows it's going to happen. And notice why he reveals himself in this way. Verse 19, it says, I'm telling you this, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. He lifts that phrase directly from Isaiah. In Isaiah, the great I am, the God of the universe says, I declare the end from the beginning. I'm writing the story before it even gets started. Jesus is supplanting and supplementing their faith, looking back to the Old Testament and saying, guys, I know what's going on because I am God and I'm in charge. And so we see that God through Jesus, is in charge because number four, the fourth piece of evidence here is Jesus' command to Judas and to Satan. Look in verse 27. Then after he, Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So Jesus is in command the whole time. He's in control. Nothing is outside of his grasp. And when he says this to Judas, I think he's looking over Judas's shoulder, seeing Satan in the background, says, guys, it's time to do your part. Judas nor Satan cannot make a move without the permission and command of Jesus. 
Later, when Jesus predicts Peter's denial, he says to Peter that Satan has asked permission to shake and to sift Peter. So Judas or Jesus will allow Satan to shake Peter, but he does not allow him to take Peter. We'll see that more in detail next week. But if we take that logic back to Judas, God also has to allow Satan permission to take Judas. So think about Job or Peter or Judas. Satan has no power, no authority outside the explicit command of Christ. That gives us comfort. No weapon or spiritual force can come against us without the purview and providence of God at work. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he will destroy, but that lion is on a leash, and Jesus is holding the other end. That is comforting to know. This is not out of control. Side by side with that, we see his sovereign comfort of his control, but we also see the comfort of his personal affinity. We can think, yes, Jesus is in charge of the universe out there, but he's not in here. We need to know that Jesus is right here with us. Jesus is not aloof. He's not unable to sympathize. He is able to understand our situation. His affinity with us, his closeness to us, goes to the deepest core of our lives. So if you've been betrayed by someone close to you, Jesus is sold out by one of his closest friends for a handful of silver. He's innocent in everything but sold out for repentance. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned. All his disciples will eventually leave. Jesus was left to face his beatings, trial, and crucifixion alone. No one stands at his side. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. But have you also faced the temptation to seek out revenge on those who've abandoned and betrayed you? What does Jesus do for Judas? He just washed his feet, knowing that Judas is about to walk out that door to sully his entire soul. Judas serves his enemy. Jesus is not on the sidelines of our lives. He is here in solidarity with us. And he's not some emotional cyborg. Just because he's God doesn't mean he doesn't feel pain or hurt. Look in verse 21. It says, Jesus was troubled in spirit. He expresses pain and agony over this betrayal and what's to come. He's in turmoil. He's anxious. His insides are all turned upside down. He's troubled, it says. He's fully human in this moment. He knows what we are going through because he's been there. He knows what it's like. Everything but sin, Christ is in solidarity with us. But notice that knowing the full story, knowing the goodness and glory that awaits him, Jesus is troubled. Knowing what's ahead of us does not make the trials or evil circumstances any easier. Jesus feels that. He's experienced every temptation and experience in sin, except for sin that we have. He knows our needs. He feels our pain. He walks beside us. Yet in the same moment, he washes his enemy's feet. What self-control, what love, and what grace. I think most of us would have just been like, if I'd have known someone's going to betray me, I would have squashed him right there. Jesus doesn't do that because he knows the bigger plan at stake. 
So we see his sovereign control, we see his personal affinity with us, and then also, thirdly, we see his, the comfort of his persistent invitation. Jesus is always offering an invitation to come, to eat, and believe. Jesus chose these 12 men, including Judas, to be part of his crew, to be part of his inner circle, to be part of the most elite group of disciples in history. Jesus invites them to see the miracles that confirm his nature, to hear his teachings, to advance the kingdom of God, to work. Throughout this time with the 12, he's always inviting them in. This invitation goes out time and time again. Just hear a few of these. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus will invite them, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. While you have the light, believe in the light, and you become sons of light. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. And the invitation, do you believe this? The invitation to believe has come time and time and time again. And whereas 11 disciples have followed and believed, one does not. Jesus, Judas is always on the outside, ignoring the invitations, pushing them away, trying to reinterpret them to match his own agenda, and finally just rejecting them outright. Judas could have repented and believed all along the way, just like the other guys, but he chose not to because his heart was hard. His disillusionment had led to this hardening that rejected the gospel over and over and over again. A curious thing happens in this scenario. Luke tells us, that when Jesus tells them that, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me, they start pointing fingers at each other, but they also go and, hey, Jesus, is it me? Am I capable of such a thing? Why do they ask themselves that question? Why do they come to Jesus and say, uh, am I the one who's going to do that, Lord? Why do they ask that? Well, they don't trust themselves, nor should we trust ourselves. We must realize that this response, is it I? Is it me? is the right reaction. Because left to ourselves, we would betray Jesus. We would walk the same road with Judas. We would abandon him in our own power. Without divine aid, without the Holy Spirit, we too would have gone away into that night. In asking this question of whether or not we are a true disciple, most often proves that we truly are. Those who consider their sin, who think about their life, and who ask the Lord for clarification and assurance are true, genuine disciples of Jesus. That gives us comfort. We've responded to his invitation. If you are asking those questions, if you're avoiding the dangers of hidden sin, if you're clinging to the comforts of Christ, if you're not following Judas into the darkness, you are a child of light. We know this because he invites his children to come, he invites his sheep, and they follow him. His sovereign and providential plan holds us fast when we cannot. And that is gloriously comforting. That his persistent invitation goes out to his people and his sheep. His sheep hear their voice and they follow. But there's another one who asks that same question, is it I? But he does not respond in faith. He does it to play the part, to act like everybody else. Because here in the end, it seems like Jesus will offer at the table one more invitation for Judas to repent and to turn and believe. 
After revealing to the disciples if he's going to betray, Judas doesn't fess up, even after he hears Jesus' warnings about woe to the man by whom the Son of Man will be betrayed, he plays dumb. Uh, it's not me, is it, Rabbi? I can't be the one who does that. Jesus then takes a bit of his bread from his plate, dips it in the bowl, and hands it to Judas. Judas has a chance to come clean right then and there. He doesn't do it, and the invitation is suddenly and forcefully and finally cut off. Notice Jesus' persistent invitation with us. For those of you who have not repented and believed, Jesus is calling you today. Hear his word and believe it. Come, eat, and drink. Follow him into the light away from the darkness. Repent and believe. Jesus' invitation rings loud and clear. His grace is overwhelming and his mercies are ever true. This persistent invitation is open to all of us who would believe and follow. And that's comforting. God's control and his plan and his providence are working with us. Knowing Jesus is with us now brings us to accept that invitation. Because there will be a day then you will no longer be able to hear that invitation. If you have not repented and believed, the night will fall and your chance for repentance will be over. Don't neglect the opportunity God, through Christ, is giving you today, now. Jesus has suffered and died so we would not have to endure God's punishment. He's been offering us resurrection life because he has been resurrected from the dead. So while we have the light, let's walk in the light, believe in the light, trust in the light, follow Jesus into that light, not into the darkness. Because, you know, in the darkness, the dangers of hidden Persistent, unrepentant sin will destroy us. So we must repent of using Jesus, of ignoring Jesus, of wasting all of our spiritual privilege. Humble yourselves before Christ. Trust in his sovereign plan. Respond to the invitation today. And so the nefarious works of Satan have been in play all this time. Satan and Judas have played all their hands. They think they're on the precipice of victory. They're about to overthrow Jesus, thwart the plans of God. But God's purpose, to save people, to defeat evil and sin and death, is going to be undermined, paradoxically, by the death of Jesus. That death that's brought about by the betrayal of Judas. In his sovereign plan, he uses the most vile and malicious plot in all of history, the betrayal and murder of his own innocent son to bring about the greatest victory and glory. That's comforting. God is working. Satan can only see to Friday. He fails to remember that Sunday's coming. The resurrection three days later will prove that it was Jesus and the Father at work all along. The hidden power of sin has been reigning in plain sight. But the resurrection and salvation that he offers us today is alive and well, working from the beginning to the end to bring his sons and daughters to glory. So who's been redeeming everything? It's been Jesus all along. Who's been pulling every righteous string? It's been Jesus all along. He's been merciful. Hotros so trustful. But you haven't even noticed it. And the glory is he's fixing everything undoing everything that has gone wrong. Thanks to Jesus, gracious Jesus, it's been Jesus all along.
Let's pray.